This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Idiocracy, currently streaming on VOD. But before we launch into this week's movie, next week we will be covering what many consider to be the best sports comedy of all time, just in time for the Masters. A golf tournament, in case you have no familiarity with sports whatsoever. But the movie is Caddyshack, starring Chevy Chase, Rodney Dangerfield, and Bill Murray. You won't want to miss that one, so catch it on VOD before next week's show. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to subscribe, comment, or ask a question about the show. Finally, we've moved the schedule around a bit in the first half of this year, but we are still planning our schedule to finish the spring and into the summer, including a tiebreaker show, a revisit, and another list episode as well as much, much more. So get in touch with us on Instagram, Twitter, by email, or our website to let us know what you would like us to cover yet this year. Okay, Dad, once I made this suggestion, I think this might have been about six weeks ago, you really pushed for us to do this movie, and especially for April Fool's Day. What is the appeal about this movie that you really felt we had to cover it? It just so summarizes a certain element in American or in world culture that I'm seeing now, which is this anti, well, it's the stupidity of intellectuals and the spies of intellectuals by the everyday person or by the common man. Well, I think it starts with a level of, I think it starts with a lack of trust in institutions, thus leading to our pushback against experts, thus creating a culture of anti-intellectualism. And while I know that this film kind of gets at that, it doesn't spout that as the cause for what the current climate of anti-intellectualism is. So I, I, there are ways in which people have applied this movie as somewhat prophetic in judging where we're at currently, especially in a political climate, that I don't think is a like-for-like like comparison, but certainly you can make or draw conclusions and then see a little bit of ourselves in this. Yes, I think that to some extent what we're talking about is, is it's it 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 goes deeper than that. It it and when you say it's distrust of institutions, I mean I I've been ex or I've had to have someone explain what a man explainer is or is that the term mansplaining mansplaining okay i think that there's a certain thing that's going on in culture now where it's intellectual splaining where they feel like uh those who are intellectual talk down to them and it's offensive to them so they lash out at it well and i think that's kind of the irony of this movie is it almost exclusively comes from the perspective of the intellectual, and it's kind of a condescending movie. It is very condescending. I mean, you and I can easily laugh at this because we kind of sit up on the pedestal of intellectualism that we're pretty much known for. But, boy, I if uh, 
If I didn't consider myself somewhat learned, uh, and I know just by saying that I'm definitely in the learned class, uh, <laughs> that uh, I think we would have a much uh, different take on this film. Probably, yes. So, uh, do you have your plot summary ready? Yes. An army of experiment goes awry, and Joe Bowers, played by Luke Wilson, awakes 500 years into the future. He soon learns that Darwinian processes have been put in reverse, and the stupid have inherited the earth. He is now the smartest man in the world. Recognition? There is none. If you want to give it any, I kind of wrote in something because I didn't want to put not applicable, but it is a significant cult following like Mike Judge's previous film, Office Space, and has been cited often in the Trump era of politics as a somewhat prophetic film of modern political culture. But outside of that, like this thing was barely put out by the studio, which I'm sure is going to come up in our larger discussion. It was a straight-to-video release almost. It made almost no money. It has very few, if any, just mainstream reviews. So this is not a heralded movie in the uh, main part of culture. This was more of a, oh, have you seen this movie type of thing. And so recognition, yeah, this is probably the anti-recognition movie. Yes. I had never heard of it until a friend of mine told me to watch it. And then I'm like, he explained it to me, and I'm like, do I really want to sit through that? Because it almost would be like nails on a chalkboard. But when he visited me from Pennsylvania, he made me watch it, and I thought it was funny. And But I didn't remember a whole lot until I saw it again uh, in preparation for the show. Rest in peace, Bob. Did you know, writer and director Mike Judge came up with the idea for the film while he was visiting Disneyland with his family and saw two mothers with kids and strollers fighting and cursing at each other. He thought it would be horrible if humanity was like this in the future. Did you know? (laughs) Unsure of how to market the film after disastrous test screenings, 20th Century Fox sat on the nearly completed film for over a year before finally giving it an unusually small release in only six markets skipping over major markets such as New York City. The release was done with little to no marketing. Did you know? In addition to the Fuddruckers gag, early drafts of the script had another scene showing the devolution of sports with a stadium's marquee sign changing from championship baseball to extreme baseball, essentially just a bat fight, to finally just fire. (laughs) And finally, did you know? Frito's last name, Pendejo, is a Spanish insult which means pubic hair, but conveys the same sentiment as dumbass. His full name, Frito Pendejo, means fried pubic hair or fried dumbass. It might also be a reference to Frito's corn chips ill-conceived and Mexican-phobic Frito Bandito advertising character. You can only learn that shit here, folks. So, what is this movie about, and then what is the elevator pit? Uh, It's a satire of the state of intellectualism and anti-intellectualism, and it um, is supposed to show what, basically, as I indicated, Darwin processes in reverse. I think it has one central question, and I'm going to try and sum it up in three words. Are we devolving? Oh, boy. (sighs) It's trying to do that through satire, but that's the essential question is whether or not by process of 
sheer numbers, whether we're devolving into uh, no longer the survival of the fittest, but just simply survival. Well, just look at it this way. What do we have, okay, in sports? At one point in time, we had boxing, which was highly skilled, highly, there were rules and regulations and all and point scoring and such. And now we have ultimate fighting. Oh, hold on now. All right. So here's the thing. And I'm going to end up, this, this is going to devolve as a conversation. So you can already see where we're going with this. Ultimate fighting is still closer to boxing and what you were talking about with boxing than you think it is. There are points, there are rounds, there are uh, a lot of different rules. And yes, there are elements where you can blend together different fighting styles for, that's why it's called mixed martial arts, because there are so many different things that are going on with that. But that one still has rules. The one that has gained popularity, that had its championship, I think either last weekend or the weekend before in Warsaw, Poland, which is now in support by the uh, former UFC owner and current president, Dana White, is ultimate slap fighting, where 300-pound men haul off and slap each other and are awarded points on a basis no one understands. It's literally the judges make it up as they go. So it's like watching sumo wrestlers slap each other as hard as they can in the face. And that's the whole sport. So (laughs) I I knew if I brought that up, that would make your point a lot better than you did. Because I don't want to insult the potential fans of Ultimate Fighting. I don't understand it. Even to a certain degree, I don't understand boxing uh, as a strategy or a sport or exactly how it goes along. And I think boxing has a lot of issues, but I don't want to go into the deterioration of sports as uh, a larger conversation on how culture has devolved. Anyway, my elevator pitch for this one is fairly simple. Man wakes up 500 years in the future where everyone is stupid. that's pretty succinct. It's pretty close to your plot summary. So I I, I don't think you need to take it too much farther. You could basically sell anybody on about that point. So let's move to best performance. Then I had Mike judge. You have to have a very good comedic mind, but also a very creative mind to be able to conceive of this world. And it may seem obvious once you kind of dive into it, but I don't think there were too many people clamoring to try and do something of this nature. So between that and directing and all of the things that it took to try and produce and create this film and get it into a spot where it could uh, take on a cult following, I think he has to be probably the best performer of this movie. I also had Mike Judge with also a shout out to the co-writer who was Eaton Cohen, who um has done uh, other films. He did uh, Men in Black 3 and some other things. He's uh, an Israeli um, who uh, does some comedy and some other things. Um, so, yes, I agree with you. I thought that the writing was was wonderful and it was creative. And I could just imagine them sitting down and having just a blast coming up with the most far-fetched ideas and trying to decide how to put them into the film and if they'd work or not. And who was your best secondary performer? Dex Shepard. 
I thought he did a really great job of of straddling between just moronic and having some semblance of something that you could hold your hat to as being common sense. And anybody who could marry Kristen Bell, it's got my vote. I don't know how when we never talk about this until we get on air that we often come to the same conclusions. I had Dak Shepard too. He is a, I wouldn't say he's an, a uh, classic example of intellectualism, but he's intellectually curious. And I listen to his armchair expert podcast all the time. He is a very open and I guess the, the word would be curious person who dives into deep topics and intellectualism and likes to have these open discussions and to go from that to remembering that he once played a guy who basically is drooling all over himself that's talent (laughs) to be able to convincingly play somebody that abysmally stupid when you're actually somewhat of an intellectual i think he has a degree from ucla in uh what is it um not archaeology um anthropology anthropology and uh i think a minor degree in sociology if i remember right did i just pants when i went in there i i I think there is talent and ability if you can pull this off convincingly and dak shepherd was very convincing as a dumb guy i agree i mean some of the lines that he just said so deadpan that you know the one coming out of uh when they're in the they're gonna shoot the field and they come out of the Starbucks, which is now a massage parlor. And they, did I have pants on when I, when I went in there? I like money. <laughs> oh, I can't believe you like money, too. You want to hang out? <laughs> All right. Most charismatic. I went with kind of an obvious. I didn't find anybody particularly charismatic because they weren't on screen a lot. So I just went with Luke Wilson as kind of a default. I think he was fine. I, I don't think it was anything great or, you know, like earth shattering, but he was likable and you kind of wanted to root for him and you have to pull for him in this movie. You didn't grow a huge relationship with him because he's kind of when they say average, I think he's kind of a an average looking guy in appearance. His intellect is probably below what I would call average intellect, but at least he's a simpleton. And yet he's somehow the smartest guy in the world because he knows that it's two pails. (laughs) Yes. I also pick Luke Wilson. This this film role for him, he's played it in so many parts. And it's the same thing, which is I'm an average guy. Everybody around me is insane. And I have to try to make some sort of sense out of the insanity around me. Yeah, it's the the same same character from old school. Yes, exactly. The same character from old school. Anyway, it's the same thing. Everything I've basically seen him in, it's the same character. He just has that knack for playing that part. So let's cut over to best scene then. What is uh, your first nominee? The opening scene. Just the whole explanation of how mankind denigrated into this situation and the stupidity of, well, we can't have children. Because it's not right. And, you know, well, I thought you were on the pill. Maybe that was, what was it, Amanda? Brittany. Or Brittany. Brittany. Oh, I guess it was Brittany. <laughs> <laughs> it's the next door neighbor in the same duplex. 
and then he then he gets injured and they uh they do microsurgery to protect his his reproductive uh abilities so he has like 30 more kids because he tried to jump a jet ski from the lake into a pool <laughs> yeah, there are not a ton of great like openings, like a, a great opening sequence. I automatically, whenever I'm comparing something to like, what is the best version of a movie that is the first ten minutes, and it pretty much goes downhill from there because it uh, carried on the idea way too long. And that's this movie. This movie could be fine if it was a short film that was the first ten minutes. That in okay. by itself would have been great. But the idea, trying to sustain it for, I think, 84 minutes that they had to, it probably petered out. I mean, they were losing the storyline by the end. Yes. Anyway, I I, I do love uh, the fact that uh, uh, they pretty much nailed the whole uh, intellectual couple's, I guess, consideration of family and children and that sort of thing, which is why we've had a declining birth rate. That's not just the United States. I... I, I read an article a few years ago about Germany. Germany's uh, birth rate, it's been about uh, less than 1%. So couples are marrying, they may have one child, and uh, some don't even have any. And as a result, in order to sustain their social safety net, they have to have a growing population. So Germany has had to allow more immigration from other parts of the world which has caused cultural backlash. And so a lot of the problems that are, are, are taking place in Germany right now is because of that. And it's, again, because Germans feel like they need to be responsible with the environment and all of this and not overpopulate. Uh, you can definitely see elements of that in the United States. Yes. Right now, there's a big concern because... Our declining population and the rest uh, has uh, been going on for a while, and we need to somehow allow immigration, but that's a much more difficult conversation with the politics that are currently going on. Anyway, the next one I'll nominate is, I'm going to say it as, ow, my balls. (laughs) The introduction of Dax Shepard's character who's sitting on a toilet recliner. I mean, good God. We're gonna we're gonna devolve that quickly. Uh, apparently, all of our sitcom has gone into everything's jackass. But if you just went on a very quick loop, you didn't do any of the uh, intermediate inter- interlude. You're just gonna go, okay. How many times can we show one guy getting hit in the nuts repeatedly? <laughs> and that's yes. the world you're waking up into. I mean. You'd probably want to either go back to sleep or uh, get a gun. (laughs) Okay, yes. So, what's your next one? I love the experiment. I love the whole concept of the uh, guy running the experiment gets caught up in the world of... uh, Prostitution. Prostitution, and uh, yeah, I thought that that was uh, uh, a, a unique take. Well, especially because they carry on that joke for a while with him trying to explain, you know, how he got involved with the pimps and what the hard life of being a pimp. 
and all the pictures on the carousel and that sort of thing. Uh, the next one I had down was the trial. Basically, if we replace Judge Judy with, I'm trying to think, Dog the Bounty Hunter, and went like full 10 on court TV, that's that trial. You, you know, my best argument, uh, just look at him, he's guilty. Yes, that'll hold up in a court of law. Having watched this again, Stephen Root looked like he was trying out for the new version of Tiger King. <laughs> I don't know. I, I As much as I abhor court TV and the notion of all these stupid civil trials and the, the midday TV that I just find so lowest common denominator, this would make me want to rip my own eyes out. I have going to the uh, scene of getting sent to prison. Just the sheer idea of using his great intellect by just walking out of prison and going, I'm supposed to be released. Oh, okay, dumbass. Yeah, why don't you look at those files behind you? (laughs) Simple yet elegant. Sometimes you just don't have to overdo it. The next one I had down, Fox News. Yes, that was great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how has it not gone to that extreme at this point? It's not like there's any... Okay, first off, I'll admit it to the audience. We have pretty much shown our cards to be straight liberals, so there is absolutely no Fox News love here. And if you're tuning in for that, you you tune to the wrong show. I'm sorry. Anytime you can make fun of Fox News and be pretty spot on, I'm fine with it. Well, on top of it, we just had the whole thing come out last year about, you know, the, the sexual or the sexual advances of Roger Ailes. And it comes out that Roger Ailes was measuring the anchor skirts so that they were up high enough and refused to put any female anchors behind desks so that their legs were visible because they drew better ratings when they had female anchors with short skirts. Yes, the over-sexualization of their primetime lineup during the news was quite evident a couple of years ago, and this got that exactly right. The only thing that counterbalances it is, is as sexy as some of the women are meant to be, they also put it on Sean Hannity. (sighs) Yeah. All right, what's your next one? The whole thing about uh, Secretary of the Interior and the cabinet at the White House. I love that scene. I thought the uh, satire of that, the the guy who's the... uh, Secretary of Education is a complete moron. I thought for sure when he's looking down the barrel of that gun, he was going to end up shooting his head off. But Well, one of the reasons this can be loosely applied to the Trump era of politics is it did feel for a while that cabinet positions were handed out on a drawing or a contest, some sort of lottery, to just whomever showed up. Well, when, when I, I had suggested that when... Uh, Linda McMahon, Vince McMahon's wife, was named head of the uh, Small Business Administration that small business loans be determined by cage fights. I went with my next one being the rehabilitation, just how you somehow conceptualized that uh, rehabilitation would be some weird uh, gladiator demolition derby thing. 
I, I don't know exactly how you come up with that unless you live in these worlds of just sheer raw action without any thought. It's just, oh, that would look cool. But that's especially what it came down to. And then finally getting that kind of like weird gladiator type fight with Beef Supreme. I, I just thought it was a, a clever usage of uh, how to somehow move the story along, make it somewhat entertaining and poke itself a little bit further. Yeah. The only thing that was missing from some of that was uh, the carnival atmosphere was them selling deep fried everything. Yeah. But that's what they got Frito Pendejo for. Do you have any others? The end, I guess, just the fact that he ends up marrying Maya Rudolph and, uh, has his three kids, and yet Frito uh, has has eight wives and 30 kids who are the dumbest in the world. I'll have some more to say on that here in a little while. Uh, favorite scene? Opening. I almost said that, but for whatever reason, I think I laughed hardest, and that's why I went favorite as opposed to most indelible with uh, Ow My Balls. <laughs> uh. I... I I don't know. It, it was just fun. Uh, that whole waking up and that first world exposure, kind of the world building that went on in that scene. So I went with most indelible, though, is the opening sequence, that, that birth rate scene. And that's what I did, too. All right. So uh, that seems like a good spot to take a break. We'll be right back. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one no matter the listener size, which will help help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us again after the break. And, uh, Dad, did we lose anyone this week? Well, we lost several. I'll start out with George Siegel. I always liked George Siegel. He was a very fine actor, did a lot in film, television, Broadway, was a banjo player, played uh, Dixieland, had a had a band that he actually played in that performed. Basically, his first big film role was in uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and got a nomination for Best Supporting Actor, and um, that was his biggest uh, role. One film he starred in was one that I found entertaining. It's never gotten real big critical reviews, but it was with, he starred in it with Jane Fonda and co-starred Ed McMahon, Fun with Dick and Jane. It's about a couple who, due to financial constraints, ends up uh, committing robberies in order to uh, make ends meet and to survive in their yuppie, then was not called yuppie, but they're upwardly mobile lifestyle out in California. So we lost him after uh, a uh, complications from surgery. He was 86. Uh, Jessica Walters, 
um, who's better known more for television, but she did a film with Clint Eastwood called Play Misty for Me, where she was a it listener was, uh, to her. Eastwood's first directorial debut. Yeah, and she played the part of a uh, fan of his radio show who became a, a uh, stalker, and that was kind of uh, her big role in films. So, and then uh, as far as um, George Siegel goes, he's better known recently as uh, the apparent father or grandfather on The Goldbergs, the ABC sitcom. Jessica Walters was better known for a voiceover that she did for the TV show Archer, which was on Cartoon Network. It's an animated spy spoof. And uh, as well as uh, Lucille One Bluth from uh, Arrested Development. So if you were a fan of either of those shows or uh, any of those shows, you might recognize either of them. We also lost Houston Tumlin, who was a child actor. His only acting credit was as the eldest son in the Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, the Will Ferrell film from uh, the mid-2000s. He was a former military man in the armed forces, I don't know which branch, but suffered from PTSD and depression. Uh, He was found with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Uh, I believe we can surmise that, unfortunately, he uh, took his own life, thus further bringing on attention to the issue of suicide, especially in a rough time this year. And uh, I would like to encourage anyone who is suffering through these things to either seek help in whatever form that may be, or uh, if you're considering suicide, please reach out to somebody we would uh, i'm sure there are people in your life that would appreciate you doing so uh on a different note the longtime author beverly cleary who wrote the uh, likes of ramona and Beezus quimby and henry huggins passed away at 104 uh, she was a longtime children's author many of her uh, small time books have been adapted to different movies or tv shows and She had a very long and storied uh, children's writing career, so uh, she will be uh, missed in that particular regard. And then finally, Larry McMurtry, um, who won the Pulitzer Prize in 1986 for Lonesome Dove, passed away earlier this week, uh, heart failure at 84 years old. Uh, He wrote many other novels, including Terms of Endearment and Last Picture Show, He also won an Oscar uh, in the early to mid-2000s for his work adapting the short story Brokeback Mountain into the motion picture version. So he also will be missed. Yes. Larry McMurtry, for a little tidbit, owned over 30,000 books. He actually bought a separate house after his uh, regular house and his summer cottage were full of books. He bought a third house just to house his extra books. Uh, is that hashtag life goals for you? <laughs> uh, maybe. Either that or David McCullough's writing shed. Ooh, that would be cool. All right. Let's turn from a rather dour and somber mood uh, over to best and funniest lines Being as this is a comedy, I think we have quite a few to go over. Let's start with the best lines, and we'll work into funniest lines. The first one I had down, as the 21st century began, human evolution was at a turning point. 
Natural selection, the process by which the strongest, the smartest, the fastest reproduced in great numbers than the rest, a process which had once favored the noblest traits of man, now began to favor different traits. Most science fiction of the day predicted a future that was more civilized and more intelligent. But as time went on, things seemed to be heading in the opposite direction, a dumbing down. How did this happen? Evolution does not necessarily reward intelligence. With no natural predators to thin the herd, it simply began to reward those who reproduced the most and left the intelligent to become an endangered species. All right, my uh, my uh, suggestion. Your kids are starving. Carl's Jr. believes no child should go hungry. You are an unfit mother. Your children will be placed in the custody of Carl's Jr. Carl's Jr., fuck you, I'm eating. The years passed. Mankind became stupider at a frightening rate. Some had high hopes that genetic engineering would correct this trend in evolution, but sadly the greatest minds and resources were focused on conquering hair loss and prolonging erections. Joe Bowers, man, I could really go for a Starbucks, you know? Uh, we don't really have time for a hand job, Joe. Yep, that was on mine. Do you have any more for best lines? Well, I, I have mine for the funniest line because it just That's hit where I me, was going and it's not—it's not even a—it's not even a line. It's on a billboard. So let's so, move to funniest lines then. You, uh, they have a billboard, and it shows a guy uh, like a cowboy with a cigarette, and it says, uh, "If you don't smoke uh, teratons, fuck you." That's a similar joke to a movie we just mentioned. There's a that commercial montage from Talladega Nights where they're advertising for Big Red. If you don't chew Big Red, then fuck you. <laughs> I don't know. I just saw that and it passed, and I started laughing, and I laughed for about three minutes. And I had to rewind it and watch it again. You know, there that was part of the trivia. I didn't put it down, but uh, – <laughs> Essentially, uh, the Surgeon General warning on there was, is the Surgeon General has one lung and uh, <laughs> um, what's the breathing? A trach tube. Like a, a voice box. Okay. Does not recommend that you continue smoking, but if you do, fine. <laughs> yeah. All right. First one I had up. The number one movie was called Ass. And that's all it was for 90 minutes. It won eight Oscars that year, including Best Screenplay. <laughs> oh, boy. I, that thing might have been the hardest I laughed the whole friggin' movie. Well, as we're getting into Oscar season, we'll have to see how true that becomes. Oh. <laughs> uh, this is the year of the mediocre, don't offend anybody movies. There have been a few that were okay, but it's not like anything's moving the needle. I watched, I, I've watched a large portion of the Best Picture nominees. I haven't watched them all. I'm going to watch them all, but I, I'm going. I, if this were another year, most of these would be on might be on the list, but they're not going to be considered. I think, well, there are a couple that I really would highlight. And I, again, I haven't seen a couple of the the films yet. I've seen the majority, I think of five out of like eight. But this is a year where it feels to me like the same year Green Book won as 
oh yeah, this is good enough. <laughs> so what's yes, your we're, we're we're honoring me- mediocrity. My last two lines were the random cameo by Justin Long as the Doctor. Don't worry, Scrote. There are plenty of tards out there living really kick-ass lives. My first wife was tarded. Now she's a pilot. (laughs) Yeah. There were several. When I watched this the first time, I did not realize some of these people were in the film. I don't remember Steven being in the film. I don't remember Terry Crews being in the film. Oh, that Uh, I remember. I remember President Camacho. But, uh, yeah. Do you have any left? Nope, I don't. All right, my last one. Well, don't want to sound like a dick or nothing, but uh, it says on your chart that you're fucked up, and uh, you kind of talk like a, I won't say that word, and your shit's all retarded. What I do is just like, like you, you know, like, you know what I mean, like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And... Now that I think about it, I probably shouldn't have even used retarded because we probably treat them in the same vein. So, yeah, uh, my apologies to anybody out there. There is a bit of um, word choice insensitivity because this was at a point in time, which we'll discuss here in a moment, where all of that very was much part of the um, bro culture vernacular. All right. Are you ready for the Stanley rubric? We are. All right, Legacy, what did you have down, Dad? Eight, because I thought this was rather prophetic. I had been saying that this was a potential for humanity as early as 1990, when uh, I was first practicing law and saw the worst of humanity doing criminal defense work. And I just was appalled by the fact that your mother and I had all our our plans laid out of how we were going to have children. We were going to space them so that there was financially we were going to be okay. And, you know, that the oldest could help with them and blah, blah, blah. And yet I'm watching my clients. Oh, well, I have three kids and, uh, oh yeah, I got two more with my girlfriend. And you want to finish that thought? Well, I thought I had finished it. It just kind of like let it linger, linger there for a moment because um, I think legacy, it does really indicate that there is a real dichotomy uh, going on in the world with how we look at child rearing and, and families and what and what is going on in society to some extent. I was more or less trying to give you the opportunity to not sound like you were putting yourself up on this huge pedestal. Oh, OK. But if you want to continue to be there. All the power to you. Well, I, 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 I came from the other side, and I worked very hard to get to this side. And if I want to be on the pedestal, I will be. Thank I you. I suppose uh, some of your relatives were um, needing of what, – what is your term? Uh, there needed to be chlorine in the Duncan gene pool? Yes. If any of my relatives are listening to the podcast, I, I would doubt that, but <laughs> – Uh, They probably wouldn't have gotten past my use of the word learned. Probably not. But anyway, uh, even within your own immediate family, there might be some need. Anyway, we're going to move on. Uh, I'm I'm having a vision of who you're talking about. uh, So you had an eight? Eight. All right. I had a six and a half. This is not as... 
I would say culty or memorable as office space. There are certain characters and lines that most people know of when you talk about that movie. And this is rarely referenced unless it's in the political space currently. And it's usually in kind of a condescending or weaponized form, basically to poke at uh, Trump voters. But most people, well, I had no better way of categorizing it kind of other than that. But anyway, most people at least have an idea of what this movie is when you mention it. And it has had a bigger life, I'm sure, than the studio would have thought at the time due to its test screening. So it kind of has this outward uh legacy that again people know of it but it's not huge so i kind of i I will actually drop my score to 7.5 based on your arguments okay so that'll leave us at a seven then for the average all right what'd you have for impact significance 2.5 okay (laughs) i never heard of the movie and and again i'll just a shout out, I, my friend Bob Puckett, Pennsylvania, turned me on to this film. Bob passed last year. One of the reasons I thought about this movie was is just thinking about Bob. I miss him. I miss the days of being able to get together with him and just uh, have conversations like this uh, and laugh at stuff. And uh, But anyway, uh, if it wasn't for him, I would never have even heard of the movie. So... I went with 2.5 uh, simply because when I do mention the movie to people, a lot of people seem to have a knowledge of its existence, but I don't see too many people who have actually ever watched it. See, again, that to me is more indicative of legacy than it is impact significance. We have to really hone in on what the category is. And I, I keep saying this, it's supposed to be within the first five years. I yes. think part of this, so I'm going to give it a two, so that's going to be uh, 2.25 between us for the average, but this was a straight-to-video release, basically. It was put out in very few theaters. It was only in those six markets that I mentioned. I think the total box office on this was like 400000 It It was uh, received kind of mediocre reviews and audience scores for years, And really, the only life it's had is in DVD video sales after the fact, and the fact that people suggested it to other people as kind of this cult movie that was little known and we talked about after the fact. It's been referenced by other people as kind of a cultural movie, and that's about it. So, like, in in the near term, in those five years, there probably were not a lot of people that were talking about this movie just enough to be able to start suggesting it to other people where it finally got its own life the further along it went. And when I talk about it, I guess I understand that. It's just most people who have heard of the movie have watched it much later because I don't know of too many people who watched it back in 2005, 2006, which is why I gave it a low score. Exactly. So I guess I wasn't clear. Okay, let's go over to novelty then. I have a nine. The only reason I'm going to knock this down a point, and while I think this was very creative, it's certainly different from most other things, which frankly most might judge created or written properties are very different from just about anything else. But time travel and hibernation had been kind of done to death 
uh, in the late 90s, 2000s. It was kind of cliche at that point. Uh, so I kind of give it a, like a half point down on that one. And there, there's a little bit of, uh, and maybe I should have reserved this for classicness instead of novelty, but there's kind of a, an element of laughing down as opposed to laughing up. And so it, it seems a little bit unnecessary. The creativity, I also have a few nitpicks, if you will, when we get to remaining questions that uh, kind of question the competence of the the true creativity and narrative to go with all of this. And then finally, I guess, apparently there was a short story in 1951 by a Cyril Kornbluth that basically went off the same similar premise. So I don't know, I don't have an exact reason to conclude whether or not this was uh, drawn upon that premise or that they used it or borrowed from it, but it's kind of telling that this, at least they weren't the first one to this exact concept. Well, let's put it this way. If indeed there's somebody named Cyril Kornbluth, that uh, shows the reason why he wrote the article, because he was questioning his own parentage for naming him that. Yeah, but with a name like Cyril Kornbluth, uh, don't you think he'd have to be in the intellectual parentage? Yeah. Like, that's one of those NPR-type names, or, like, that, uh, and now, Masterpiece Theater with Cyril Kornbluth. <laughs> yes, I know. Otherwise, he would have had to have had the words, insert here, tattooed on his forehead for somebody to do a swirly. Yeah, that sounds about right. Especially in 1951. Anyway, what did you have down? I had an 8.5, and it's a lot of the same reasons. I thought it was novel in the satire aspect of it and what he did with it. But, you know, the futuristic aspect and where it will be and how it will be, uh, to me, had been done before, and I can understand that. But to take it to this extreme of that it was actually going to be the opposite of the normal Darwinian philosophy um, I thought that scored big. So I went down a little bit just because of the uh, the aspect of the futuristic or futurism of it and such. So Certainly I can find that. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, there's an element of this where, honestly, this whole movie could have probably been done in a half-hour Simpsons episode where Homer's the one that gets um, hibernated. Well, it, it it does have reminiscences of a Beavis and Butthead episode. Yeah. Well, he worked on both shows, and he was the creator, I, I believe, of uh, Beavis and Butthead. So. I know. I was expecting a half-headed Britney Spears to show up at any moment. That's South Park. Oh, that's South Park. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. My mistake. And if you want me to do my best Cornholio... all right anyway okay so that'll put an 8.75 between us classicness (sighs) go ahead well no i'm gonna i'm gonna put this in two different lights i i think the further out from the trump era we get the less this will be recognized as prophetic i think it's accurate in a lot of its 
sociological commentary, at least in the, especially in that opening scene, which we've already mentioned a number of times. So I have to give it credit for that. And I can't completely knock it down. The problems with this are not necessarily in the humor. Well, uh, okay. (laughs) And this is the thing. I'm I'm trying to weigh both sides evenly and do it respectfully, especially in context of what we said last week. First off, I laughed. I'm sorry. I did. I found certain things funny. It still holds up on some of the jokes. The jokes are more inappropriate than they were in 2006 because of the insensitivity, but some of that I still laugh at despite myself. Uh, I don't get to the point where it's completely cringeworthy. The The biggest part, and I knocked it down three points, so I ended up with at a seven, oddly enough, because it's still seen as prophetic and has a good sociological commentary. It's still seen as somewhat funny, and I might be higher on that than you, Points where I got or I knocked it down were the constant bro humor, labeling everything insultingly, either with feminine or a certain F derogatory term toward homosexuals that I won't use. This is a point in time where I was in high school and everything that was lame or stupid or whatever was referred to as gay. And it was offhandedly said this would have been culturally appropriate to take it to that next level where the devolution of humanity would be that you'd call everything by the F term. And so it makes sense in context that they would use it. But boy, did that age out poorly in only a couple of years. We took a huge left turn on that particular issue and then going after like a Me Too era to throw in all of the feminine stuff and the effeminate stuff. And those parts all aged very poorly. And I could come down off of this if you make the right argument. But for whatever reason, I felt with the elements that brought it up that I had to somehow even out and split the difference at somewhere around a seven. Thoughts? I went with an eight. And this is why. Because... The fact they were using those terms by a bunch of idiots was meant to show that the idiocy was using those derogatory terms. That's the point of it. I mean, the fact that humanity degenerated into this massive pile of goo and we're using this as common language shows exactly the fact that these words are inappropriate. This was ahead of its time, not behind its time, because it showed the stupidity of using derogatory terminology. Well, at least particularly in those categories. Yes. And I thought about that angle myself. I didn't end up going with it as a highlight because I think it's a harder argument sometimes to make. But I, I... I see your point, and I award you for it. It ends up at a 7.5 between the two of us. I would love to hear an interview with Mike Judge right now about this film. My guess is is that he will say exactly what I did, which is I use that language because I found it offensive and figured if I made the stupidest things possible using it on a regular basis, it would highlight the stupidity of using that language. No, I wouldn't necessarily need to hear an interview with Mike Judge. I The creator would be given too much scrutiny 
and thus wouldn't be given a fair weighting of it. The person that I think should review how the language is used, particularly in this, is the only person that seems to have been able to survive as a stand-up comic currently and get ahead with some level of additional notoriety that they didn't have well or that uh, they get additional popularity in the current context or how, how to put it, um, attention, maybe. And that's Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle constantly uses rather derogatory terms and is throwing out and pushing comedy boundaries and doing all of this stuff, but he does it in a way that has an intellectual flair. And while I don't particularly enjoy most of Dave Chappelle's comedy, I just personally don't find it very funny. His ability to do that and yet remain relevant, that was the word I was looking for, is unusual where we've canceled a lot of other comedians for trying to push very similar envelopes. Uh, Rewatchability, I had a five and a half. The movie doesn't appeal to me nearly as strongly as it once probably would have. And frankly, this is only the second time I've seen it. It, it takes me a little bit of psyching up in order to get to the point where uh, I can watch so much stupidity without feeling like I'm also getting stupider as I watch it, even though it's a social commentary. I also think that the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie are probably the best, and it kind of slowly peters out after that. And there are a lot of comedies like that, so I can't give it too much flack, but it just doesn't hold up over the entire 84 minutes. I'll give it a half point extra as opposed to just going simply on the median that I could watch it, but I don't have to. I'm not opposed to watching it, but whatever else is that it's a short movie. It's not even a full 90 minutes. It was very, it was very quick and easy to just plow through and okay, you're done. So if somebody asks about it or you use this as an example, uh, this is like an extra long episode of television that you could probably watch anymore, and nobody's going to get too offended by watching 84 minutes instead of something that's two hours even. So I went with that five and a half. Okay. So the rewatchability, and I'm, I'm looking at the rubric and trying to decide how I believe we should do each one. So I'm taking each one of the categories and really thinking about it. So rewatchability was the one that I first watched, and I had to assess. All right, so I decided that if I've had three bourbons and it's a Friday night from a long work week, and the TV is on and the remote is sitting on the table, the the coffee table, and I'm leaned back in my recliner, a five is I would go all right, well, I'll just leave this on as opposed to going to the effort of pulling my chair forward and reaching for the remote. Okay? So that's why I gave this a five. Okay. So if if it's to the point where I would specifically not even contemplate it, that's about an eight. And if I would definitely not, that's a ten. Five is, eh, I'm thinking about it, but I probably won't. Four is... Well, do I have the energy and should I? Maybe. So anyway, just me. So that's why I gave it a five. All right. So let's recap all of the numbers just to give uh, all of the averages. That was a seven average for Legacy, 
2.25 for impact significance, 8.75 for novelty, 7.5 for classicness, 5.25 for rewatchability, and then we had a composite score between the Rotten Tomatoes 60 audience award score wow. and a 87 on Google for 7.35 points for a total of 38.1. All right. And that slots it actually in between Mr. Roberts and Cool Hand Luke. On really? The list. Cool okay. Hand Luke is very far down. It's actually somehow above Zodiac. Okay. Just that's where the list is. This is yeah. why we're eventually going to do some revisits. Okay. Just saying. All right. So remaining questions. I don't really have any. Okay, well, I have two. The entire premise of this movie is based upon the fact that intelligence is somehow a genetically uh, past characteristic. Do you buy that? No. Um, I don't because... Otherwise you wouldn't be here. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to continue to pick on my family because... You know, the Duncans were very, a lot of the Duncans are very brilliant people. It's just that there was a large section of them that had some very troubling and trying environments that did not necessarily encourage dedication, uh, organization, uh, motivation. I'll take it a step further. You've classified them before as smart but lazy and always trying to take the easiest path out which usually ends up being something that's going to get you criminally involved and very uh also usually not with the resources available to keep you out of those things or out of prison yes so i i don't want to make too many assumptions on all of that because i don't know a lot of your family extremely well but I, too, don't buy that genetics are the only advancement of somebody's, let's say, intelligence. I think there is a big factor to play in, yes, aptitude is passed on by intelligence, but a curiosity to learn and be creative are fostered through environment most times. The people you hang out with, your parentage, uh, your teachers, those all have a bigger factor to me sometimes in someone's ability to learn. And ultimately I take the standpoint that most people aren't stupid. They have their specific areas of genius. It's just, they may not be what we traditionally find to be the classic forms of quote unquote intelligence. And that's why I think this has a little bit different of a maybe less classicness that we're we're aiming down a lot, and I I have tended to be more empathetic the longer the Trump era has actually gone on. No, go ahead. You had another question? Yes, I had one other one. It seems to me that it wouldn't have taken 500 years for the human race to basically be in a position where they ran out of burrito wraps and. Uh, all of the other things to sustain life, especially if they were watering crops with essentially Gatorade. Uh, My question basically is, is 
how is it that uh, the human race didn't die out before they got to this intellectual stupidity? Well, easy, because Carl Jr.'s was providing a large portion of the food resources. Yeah, but somebody had to be able to be creative and keep that that Uh, conveyor belt running. Like, there are so many things. It's like the subconscious mind. There had to be at least somewhat semi-intelligent people to create all the systems. So unless you're incorporating a AI that basically does all the thinking for you, it wipes out your ability to sustain that many people. I understand it's a satire. Oh, I know. It's more of a nitpick to me. Had you put this that we had uh, somehow reached a new point of humanity where we systematically, and I think it could have taken a darker tone, where we actually not only were devoid of intelligent people, but we'd taken anti-intellectualism so far that we killed all of the intellectuals. Uh, yes. That, that would have been a different uh, modus operandi for this film, and it would have been a much darker comedy, but I think that would be the next version of this. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be doing Caddyshack, currently streaming on VOD, so you won't want to miss out on that one. Please like, subscribe, review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at at gmotepodcast, or find Dana or I on Twitter at at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM.